You are listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders. Brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. Being rare, by definition, is a lonely and hopeless thing. Loving and caring for someone with a rare condition can sometimes feel even more lonely and helpless. You spend most of your time thinking, how can I help them? Or influence the healthcare industry to find a cure for the rare condition my father, mother, child, brother, sister, husband, or wife have. Our guest today is a visionary and an inspiration to anyone who has had that lonely, hopeless feeling. Sanath Ramesh is a father of a two-year-old boy who is only one of nine kids worldwide with an ultra-rare genetic disease. It is hard to find conditions that are more unique. However, Sanath and his wife have found an antidote, not to the condition for their son, but for the loneliness and hopelessness that goes along with it. It comes down to two simple things. One, sharing their story. Sanath has chronicled the good, the bad, and the ugly truths about the journey he has taken with his family on his podcast, Raising Rare. And two, crowdsourcing for a cure. Sanath has applied his software wizardry to the creation of the Open Treatments Foundation, an open source software platform to enable treatments to millions of patients worldwide. By unapologetically sharing his story, Sanath is giving others the inspiration to do the same. By sharing these stories and giving people hope are enough to change our industry. And change is what we need. Sanath, um, I know we're going to spend a lot of of time in, in some of our conversation on the impact that you're having on advocating for people with rare conditions. But I really want to have our viewers and our, our listeners understand um, kind of your story and, and how you found yourself in this world of rare disease and this world of orphan disease um, and what matters to you um, in many ways. So if you can give us a little backstory on yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here, uh, Donovan, on this podcast. It's um, it's my pleasure. Um, you know, I, I my background is in software. Um, I started my career over 10 years ago at uh, Microsoft as a software engineer, um, and I currently lead a team of um, engineers at Amazon in their um, in, in one of the healthcare divisions. Um, but you know, the the more interesting part about my life and and the thing that started it all is is my son Raghav. Um, he is about two and a half years old now. Um, you know, when I started talking about Raghav, I, I I used to say he he's one year old. And you know, every every time I speak about him, I keep I keep looking at the at the, at the time ticking. He's going to be three soon, so um, we're really excited that uh, that he's stable, he's happy, he's smiling all the time. Uh, but underneath his all his smile is is an ultra ultra rare genetic condition um, that affects only nine people in the world. Uh, it it is caused by a mutation in a gene called GPX4. Um, when I when I got started in this journey, um, you know, we, I, I didn't know what a gene meant. 
Um, so, you know, every time I would um, encounter one of these medical terms, I would go to Wikipedia and start start searching for, okay, what is a gene? What, what is a DNA? Where, do I have a DNA? Does my son have a DNA? Where does it sit oh, in, in my body? Like, I, I just cannot see it myself, right? Um, so it took me a while, um, and I have a lot of funny anecdotes on, on me doing that, uh, but it took me a while for me to realize that um, I'm on this journey that, that no one has been on. Um, and this journey started um, after my son's diagnosis. Um, and right after that, we got into, you know, action mode of trying to find a treatment for him. Um, and then we got into a lot of um, uh, grief because things are not moving as fast as they, they would like to be. And then we came out of that with with a plan for for even solving a bigger problem, which led me to building a new nonprofit called, called Open Treatments Foundation. Um, and so, you know, all in all, I am—I uh, have one one leg in software and, and my other leg in in rare disease drug development. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's, and it sounds like, and, and you touched on it briefly, but you've gone through like that full cycle of emotions. That, you know, the the what the heck is this? I need to find out more about it. And, and uh, you know, and unfortunately for you and, and your family and your son, it's rare of the rare, right? You, you know, you said nine people, and. You've then you've gone through. Okay, now I have to take a proactive approach to this. We we've accepted we have it. We we were sad, and now we have to come out of that that grief and and really push forward, right? And I, I think that's some of the things that, that a lot of our list our listeners go through, and a lot of folks with rare disease. I know my family went through that with our with our rare disease that we have in our family called Alpha One. Um, but one of the things that that you've done is you kind of taken you know even more action where you've started a not for profit open treatment. You've started a, a podcast, you know, raising rare, trying to get more of, of, of things out there, you know, just, just to touch on real quick before we get into, I, want, I do want to hear more about raising rare and, and more about open treatment. Um, what's been the most surprising thing to you when, when you got involved in this community and when you got involved in the rare disease and started, you know, doing more and more with it? The, the most surprising thing for me was, um, was how, Little I understood how the world works. <laughs> um, you know, we, every every single week we we go through these epiphanies um, of um, oh shit, I was totally wrong about this person, and and it, it started yeah. with you know my my, my physician um, because we got a diagnosis, we went to the physician's uh, clinic, and we asked him, can you give me a medicine? Right? Um, he was one of those MD PhDs who actually said. Well, there is no medicine right now, but I can help you find one. Um, and we came back home incredibly hopeful because, you know, we, we went from um, what was impossible to what was what was almost a reality for us um, in a matter of few days. And we, we thought that was a victory. Um, and as I was sitting there on the couch that evening after I came back home from the clinic, you know, I started asking myself, um, what if this person is wrong? Right? What if what if they cannot find me a drug? What will happen to my son? And my son is, is is laying down there, and I'm looking at him and thinking, you know, I just cannot let this happen to him. Right? I I, I really need to hedge against uh, the risk of my physician being wrong. And that was just a serious, uh, you know, that was just the first time. 
every almost every week, every month, we go through several of these uh, assumptions that we had about the scientist that was going to give us the treatment, this doctor that was going to find us the treatment, or this biotech company that was going to help us, or these groups of biotech companies that are going to help us. Mm-hmm. And even, even beyond that, you know, my own efforts uh, that was going to help my son um, in six months, 12 months time frame. We see time passing by and we see kind of the, the expectation versus reality. And it has given me um, an immense appreciation. And, and, uh, and it's been incredibly humbling to know that I know nothing about this world. And funny enough, most people don't know nothing about how the world works. Right. Yeah. And I think that's as you go through this and as you mentioned, you, you know, you go through all those different stages and you're sitting there going, you know, a week's gone by and we were told there was something, uh, you know, people, I really believe that people don't understand how long that drug development path work, you know, takes to work and, and, and how much trial and error is involved in that because of, you know, side effects and because of, you know, something works for one person and doesn't work for another. And, you know, the, the thing, the, the things that go through that and, you know, and, uh, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, I get to see it every day with what we do um, at OptimiCare, but you know, the, the, the person who is sitting there with a loved one trying to figure out how I can take care of this loved one or how do I, you know, better this process. It is, it is daunting. It's frustrating, but it's also rewarding as, as you kind of go through it and you start uncovering things. So, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that, you know, one of the things that you've done is, is started a podcast raising rare, right. And, um, what inspired you to share, you know, kind of that, that, that story to the world? What's, 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 what's been, you know, there and what do you hope to achieve? What inspires you, you know, tell us a little about raising rare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Raising Rare, I started Raising Rare with, with Kevin Fryer, um, who is um, the founder of Salem Oaks. Um, he, and he was an ex-biotech, I think he was an ex-Pfizer guy for several years. Um, and we started this podcast because um, when I got into this journey, I felt incredibly lonely. I needed someone to talk to. Um, I cannot keep ranting at my wife, so I wanted to rant to the world. <laughs> um, Jokes aside, um, I, I did want to want to share what I was going through to the world. One as uh, as as a means for helping others um, understand what we are going through as a family, because I realized that no person around me actually understands what it is to raise a kid with a rare disease. Um, no one in our first degree or even a second degree network understands what we are going through, uh, and let alone understanding the process of patient-led drug development, right? Um, and so this was a mechanism for me to connect with my friends and my family and tell them, here's what's happening to me. Uh, and this was also a mechanism for me to learn from Kevin and learn from others that we have had on our podcast um, on, on how drug development works. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, listeners of the podcast have really enjoyed um, just like listening to our story, listening to the candor that goes in. Um, there is little that is scripted there um, and, and it's as real time as possible. Um, you know, we, my son gets a cochlear implant. We talk about it in the podcast. Um, I, I just figured out recently that, you know, I can uh, download the entire insurance claims for my son for the last two and a half years. So we talked about financial impact of, of raising a rare kid on our podcast. So it, it's quite organic um, and it just like explains our life as it happens. Yeah. And I, and, you know, and I've listened to the show a, a few times and, and I think it's what I took from it, uh, you know, is exactly what you said. You're, you're telling your story and you're doing it 
in a way that, you know, helps you. It's therapeutic for you. And when I listen to it and I know when others listen to it, it it's therapeutic for them and they, they, they may bring them to come forth or to tell their story. And, and one of the things, um, you know, I, I, I did an interview with, um, with, with somebody a little while back. And one of the things that we talked about was tell your story. You know, the, you're, you're not alone out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, there's somebody out there who, who can associate with what you're going through. And sometimes it helps to have somebody that can walk beside you and, you know, hold your hand or, or you guys can trade ideas. So I think that with raising rare, it really does help with folks to kind of hear the things that you're going through. And it, it, it really has their understanding of, of where they can go and, and who they can talk to. And, you know, we encourage folks to tell their story all the time. And, you know, we, we both have a platform where, you know, we hope people come on and tell their story because it helps other people. And, and, uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful thing that you're doing there with raising rare. So aside from having a podcast, aside from yeah, having a full, really- full-time job <laughs> and being a father, you know, you're doing all of these things and, and, you know, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you're doing all these things and you're going out there. So, you know, finish your thought real quick and then, then I'll get into my question. So, yeah, I was going to say, um, telling your story is so important. Um, uh, even, even in, even in non, you know, medical settings, right? Like you, you really have to tell your story because everybody is so unique, um, and your story is so powerful and your story is pretty much what connects you with people, what gets you a job, what gets you the next level in your career or what is therapeutic or what gets you a treatment. So, um, especially for folks that have health conditions, I mean, telling your story, it's the, it's the only way you can actually get other people to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and what, what, unfortunately for a lot of people, they, they, there's a lot of people who shut down and feel like, I don't want to tell anybody anything about me because I don't want them knowing that I'm sick. I don't know. I don't want them looking at me differently, but having that, that, that nucleus of folks, you know, you mentioned no one in your first degree of, of friends know what you're going through from a personal level. And that's tough. I mean, that that's you can explain mm-hmm. to them all day long what you're going through. But when you start meeting people that are going through the same thing as you, you start forming those bonds, you start forming advocacy, you start doing things that get awareness out there and education and all of those things. And I think that's the uh, to me, that's 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 the way we get things done. Right. We get things done w- with the masses. We get things done with you know more people involved. And, you know, I, I again, I commend you for, you know, for for bringing that about and, and looking at that. So keep, keep the, uh, keep that going. And, you know, anything, anything I can help with on that too, I, I'd love to be, uh, I'd love to be part of that and, you know, any, any advice or any help I Absolutely. can give, um, you know, as going through most of my life with, as a, as a, as a child with a parent, with a, you know, seeing my parents and my aunts and uncles suffer from a rare disease, um, really understanding what they've gone through from a caregiver perspective. Uh, I'd love to help in any way that I can. Um, looking at that. So, you know, jump into open treatments. Um, one of the things that I think is wonderful that you're doing is, you know, you're ch- trying to help folks who do share their story get to a treatment. And, you know, so talk about a little bit about that. What's, you know, what's, what's missing in this world of rare conditions that, that led you to, you know, founding open, open treatments. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've, I've been a problem solver um, for as long as I remember. Um, actually not quite. I've been a problem solver for the last five years. Um, and before that, I was just uh, a lazy bum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so when, when, I, when, I, when I got Raghav's diagnosis, um, the first thing that struck me was this is one of the best problems I could ever solve, right? I mean, look, I have a kid. 
with a rare disease. No one's ever going to touch him and solve his problem. It's only going to be me. So I don't have a competition here. And it's one of the hardest problems that can ever be solved. And look at the money that we are pouring into science, right? Look at the government funding that people are uh, pushing into into the academia. Um, and so, you know, it was really exciting for me uh, that I could do something about it. So I started reading a lot of papers. I started behaving like a scientist. I started talking to a lot of scientists and learning from them. Um, I, I did I did exceptional amount of work for the first three, three and a half months. We made enormous strides. Um, but then I hit this valley of despair, which is, oh, shit. I, I realized that no matter what I do, um, I really cannot get treatments for Raghav as fast as I would like. And uh, one, it was for lack of my skills. Um, two, it was for lack of money. Um, and three, it was just how hard the biology is. I, I just cannot you know, science is science, nature is nature, I cannot change it. So I, I decided to focus on the 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 um, my, my own skill sets and the money part, which is what I'd been doing for a while. I'd been raising a lot of funds for his rare disease research. Um, but I quickly realized as I started building Raghav's gene therapy um, that my own, I'm limited by, by my own skill sets. I'm also limited by my, my own ability to see what is needed to be done next. Um, and that hurt that hurt my my, my progress that, that ultimately hurt my son right um, and so I wanted to put a team of people together um, that would work like the world class biotechs do um, but focused on my son's treatment I couldn't do that because there's at that point there was five kids with this disease so that I cannot really fundraise right. and, and and hire a, a world-class team and I started talking to other patients and other patient foundations on how they assemble their team how they make the progress that they they're making right now um, and everybody's in the same boat that I am in they're still panicking not knowing if they're making the right money investments if they're making the right scientific investments or even if they have the right you know scientists on their on their team um, they don't know what the next step of their activity looks like. You know, everybody is going to different conferences, learning from each other and trying to figure out. But there was still a gap there because people were in this, or patient foundations were in this echo chamber where you're learning from the same person again and again. You're learning from the same set of information again and again. You're just not pushing the envelope forward because honestly, this is not like going to Costco and buying a diaper. Right, we're, we're, we're right. constructing a massive factory here to, to 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 manufacture a new drug. Right, it's 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 new. You have to push the envelope, and none of these people had the team to be able to push the envelope. So I started Open Treatments Foundation for this very reason that we need to give patient foundations um, a series of skill sets that they don't currently have today, and the skill sets would come from experts in the field who are experts in mouse models, who are experts in drug development, regulations, manufacturing, clinical trials, and whatnot, um, and, and then layer that on with a software platform so we can um, you know, decentralize and get a lot of people uh, the help that they need. Uh, and so that is what I'm doing with Open Treatments Foundation right now. Um, we have started with a pilot program of four diseases because this is just one of many ways to solve the same problem. And I don't really know if I'm onto the right solution here. So I don't want to mm -hmm. double down on a solution without knowing if I'm right. So I'm starting with a small group. We will learn from this group. Uh, we will iterate and evaluate. Uh, and and um, hopefully in a few months, you know, we'll have a, have a bigger and better platform that a lot of people can use.
No, that's that's awesome. And I think that's I think you're doing it the right way. You're looking at let's take a small subset of a couple of things. Let's look at a couple of diseases, not just focus on one. Obviously, it would be, you know, great to be able to focus on your son's disease and really get it going. But you may learn something from one, especially in, you know, in a, in the gene space, you know, something unfolds the right way. It could unfold, you know, many, many other genes that, you know, in a way that works. So, you know, I think that's exactly. a, it, it's a noble cause. It's a, it's a major, major cause. And I think that's, a, that's awesome. And go ahead. Go ahead. You were going to continue on that. Yeah. So the, the, the interesting part about kind of learning from each other's um, diseases is, is very true. And, you know, I've been focused on the fact that um, while there is biological similarity between many diseases, there's a lot of process similarity, right? And right. I, I wanted to identify the, the process commonalities and, and enable multiple diseases to go through the same process. So, you know, I kind of put, kept the biology similarity aside, um, specifically because that was a little bit too complex. Uh, and right. and I, I felt like we could make faster progress for a lot of diseases with, with sort of the process similarity. So, you know, we'll see how far it goes. Yeah. And I, and I think the, you know, one of the things you said is, you know, is putting everything into, you know, a, a process and software platform that's decentralized to where you can, you can learn from what you're doing and hopefully take that, that process into how other small rare of rare diseases can actually plug into that and, you know, raise funds and do things for their disease. I think that's, that's one of the keys to this is when you have five to five people, nine people, 15, a hundred, there's not, it's not like somebody's over, you know, thinking about that, that disease. They're thinking about the ones that have 5,000, 200,000, 300,000 patients. So I think what you're doing is great. It's a grassroots effort. It's, you know, you know, it's patient centered, it's, it's patient developed. And, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's where we need more and more people. And, you know, we, we say we focus on rare orphan or whatever those conditions are, but we need to really focus on those rare of the rare and, and those orphan of the orphan, disorders to hopefully, you know, take care of those those folks who don't have the masses behind them. So I commend you on that. So as you're, as you're developing those treatments, and I'm sure as, as, as you're, you're meeting more and more people through the podcast, through, you know, the scientific breakthroughs, through, you know, open treatments, I think one of the areas that, that you and, and, and your wife, and I've heard your wife on some of, on, on, on Raising Rare as well, and I've heard her on some of the other interviews, um, you guys have have a really now probably after going through many stages of of acceptance and grief and you know shock you you have a really good kind of level set of of how you guys handle everything so as caregivers are listening as caregivers are involved and you know as as a parent myself and you know i i I'd, I'd, I'd probably go through all that too panic shock all disbelief um, what kind of message do you, do, do you give, you know, the caregivers as they, as they get, have a child or a loved one diagnosed? Stick together. Um, it's a very hard journey. Um, and, you know, as much as we, we know and love the other person, um, they are going through uh, a time in their life that they have never experienced before. And so just like how, how, how I'm freaking out, uh, Ramya is also freaking out and she's freaking out in her own ways. Um, my manifestation of um, freaking out is, is that I go work. 
uh, right? And Ramya's manifestation of freaking out is different. And everybody has their own kind of perspectives. You know, I've been speaking to many couples that, that have um, experienced grief. They express grief differently. Um, and it, it takes usually the couples a while for them to realize that um, while while they have been sort of, you know, living that happily ever, ever after dream, uh, after the grief comes on, you know, they are now different people, right? It is true. And, and you really have to learn from each other that you're different people. Um, you also have to be able to trust each other um, more uh, and trust each other's decisions more. Um, and if, uh, you know, in many cases, like, Ramya and I wouldn't even have the time to talk about things. Um, we would text each other, but you know, at some point, it's it's not possible for me to explain all my thoughts to her. It's not possible for her to explain all her decisions to me. And so we we just like say, you know, we have an end goal in mind, and we divide and conquer and work through it. Um, and if if Ramya does things the, the, very differently from what I would do, that's fine. It really doesn't matter, right? As long as we reach the end goal that we care about. That's all. That's all matters to us, and and that sort of a a framework um, evolved through this process, um, and that sort of an understanding evolved through this process, and now um, we can get more done together um, than we could ever ever do, um, and and still stay sane, right? And along the along the way, we really have to have to look out for each other. Um, we really have to look out and know signs of distress, um, and we have to be you know over communicative um, as well. So. There's a there's a lot that that we have learned through this process of of being with each other. Um, I would just say the the one message I would say is is just stay together. You're gonna be fine. You just have to you know keep keep yourself re, reinvent and learn the other person from scratch. Yeah, I think one of the things you said is you know have it have an end goal. So I'm sure you guys talked about some of that. You know that's that's something you really need to sit down and say here's our end goal. We want to make sure that we're together in the end, and we want to make sure that we're you know getting to the same result. And I think that's something that, that really resonates with not just you as a couple, but, you know, resonate should resonate with, you know, as, as, as you develop maybe some of the, the therapies and you develop some of those things, is that something that you take into that as well? And, you know, I, I look at with, with the healthcare industry and the, you know, the scientific industry, scientific world and the drug development world, you know, you have, you, you keep that end goal within your relationship, but looking at even further along, is that something you would recommend to, you know, those folks that are, you know, developing products and developing things and, you know, how do you, uh, how do you get through that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, this is not new. Um, you know, I work at Amazon. We have this framework called working backwards where you work from the end and backwards uh, not not forwards towards the end. So if you want to launch a product, you say, I want to launch a product and here's what the product should look like and then work backwards towards a plan. Um, in, the, um, uh, in the military world, uh, there is this idea called decentralized command. Uh, the idea is that you know you're 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 in a you're in, you're in, a, you're in a war zone. Uh, your team is going out to raid uh, a building, right? And you're 10 guys, um, you know that you need to raid the building and make sure no one's in there, but you don't really have time to communicate with each other. Just think, think about what each other is going through, right? And you, so you really have to have that end in mind. Everybody needs to know what the end is and need, need to trust each other that you will reach the end, but you can't really enforce exactly how they reach the end, right? So, and it's 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 a very strong um, 
uh, approach for you know running a team, running a company. You could you could run your life like that. It just makes life a whole lot easier because I'm not thinking actively about what Ramya is doing. I know she will get my appointments for Raga for next week um, because we we talked about this three days ago, and I know she's it's on her roster, right? Like it's on her to do list. Uh, she knows that I'm going to get um, whatever I have to do that I promised to to do her reschedule this appointment or, or go to the therapy uh, because we talked about this before. Um, and it's just once we talk about it and, and it's, it's the expectation is set, the end goal is set and we work through it. So the, the, the whole idea of, of decentralized command is pretty powerful um, and it's all built, built on trust. And that's a very uh, foundation for any healthy relationship and also a foundation for any healthy company. So yeah, absolutely. So, so, so looking at that, you know, angle, looking at what you said earlier too, about how having to learn and to, you know, understand things from your perspective and realizing like you don't have the expertise in some of those things, but then also looking under the hood of, of kind of the, uh, the, the healthcare industry, what are some of the things that you think could change to kind of better serve people with rare conditions? Wow. A lot. Do you have to for the podcast? <laughs> I can keep talking. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I could spend a, um, <laughs> a long period of time on that too. Right. Um, no, a lot of things could change in the healthcare industry, and um, you know, I, I I don't like to talk about um, the tactics, or I don't like to talk about the specific. Oh, yeah, this person needs to change their. Um, right. insurance process or this person needs to change their reimbursement process right I, I'd like to talk talk think about what fundamentally is broken in the system and and what is the fundamental assumption under which all of us operate in this healthcare industry that has that has given race to an industry that cannot take take care of rare kids right and I think the fundamental assumption that is just underpinning our society is the fact that there's there's this definition of normal. There's this definition of normal health. There's definition of normal behavior. There's definition of a normal person, right? And and there is a deviation from normalcy, which is what you call a disease. And then you give someone some medication and you bring them back to that normal state, right? That is an, a fundamental assumption under which a lot of things in the society have been built. And, and definitely healthcare has been built that way. Right. Because if I get a back pain, I go to the urgent care, they give me a shot and I come back home, forget about it right it never occurs to me for the next 30 years now did the urgent care did it do any magic no they just temporarily relieved my pain and my body fixed itself so we sort of build rely on this assumption that the body can fix itself to go back to what we think is quote-unquote normal but unfortunately what we fail to realize in this definition is that well nobody is normal right, right? like everybody has a problem my my gra- my grandmother has diabetes, right? Is she normal? Yeah, she is normal. She's normal with diabetes. And, and someone has blood pressure. Are they normal? Yeah, they're normal with blood pressure, right? And similarly, my son has a genetic condition, which makes him normal with that genetic condition, right? And so the understanding that that diseases are a natural part of life and everybody is built different, there is no real one definition of normal, would, would help change a lot of things in the industry. Because if you think about it, if I go to my doctor um, and they, they look at my son as, yes, he has a problem, 
yes, we cannot fix the problem today, but we can do so many things to make it, make his life better, right? And that, that opens up a possibility. Whereas if I go to my doctor today, he'd be like, yes, he has a problem. Unfortunately, I cannot fix it. Go home and do whatever you do and hope things right. and pray things will get better, right? Now that shuts off the possibility. And it comes from this underlying you know, assumption that people think there is normal and there is abnormal. But in reality, everybody is different. No one's wrong, normal. Yeah, and you, and you, you know, I'm going to touch on something that you just mentioned. You know, I, I and I 100% agree with that. I think that's the you know, the, everyone has their own definition of normal. So, your normal life is taking care of your child and and kind of rearranging your schedule around the things that that has to do with ch- taking care of your son. My definition of normal is totally different than what you do. It's, you know, it's, you know, we both go to work every day. We both have a, you know, a job we go to, but my definite, my, my taking care of my kid, my kids are totally different than, than the way you take care of your kids. And, and, you know, and, you know, somebody else with, you know, children with other disorders, it's totally different for them. So yeah, you, you create your own normal. So I think that's, that's, that's a great, you know, view of that. One of the things you did mention, though, in that is, you know, going to the doctor and, and having that hope and having that that understanding that there are other things you can do. And one of the things I believe, you know, we see we see all the statistics on, on rare disease where you go to three to five different doctors seven to 10 years before diagnosis when, when you know, the, or, you know, you, you spend months in the hospital at birth trying to figure out what's what's there. And, you know, you have every every specialist come in and poke and prod your, your, your child and, you know, you're trying to figure things out. But when you look at that, you know, and, and it, I really look at it, you know, at, at the disorder that you're working with is you have nine people, right? You have nine people that, that are known with this. And when a doctor finds one of these folks, if, if you don't get to a, you know, a specialist who knows all nine patients, you're learning along with the doctor what is normal. You're learning along with the doctor what is wrong. And that's what we see with so many of, of these rare and ultra rare disorders is you are see, the doctor knows 30 seconds more than you do because he probably looked it up before you came in or she looked it up before you came in. And or they had one question on their boards or they just happened to have it in, you know, in the in their, you know, their their one of their med school classes that they popped up in a lecture like and unfortunately that's reality, right? That's, that's their normal. So what kind of advice do you, mm-hmm. you give for, for patients and, and even what you had to do as you were going through this and as you go through this with your, with your physicians that you work with, what kind of advice do you give one physicians to help with you as a, as a parent, as a caregiver, and then two as caregivers who are experiencing the same thing that you are? Yeah, so there's there's another fundamental um, assumption baked into our society, which is um, which is how I operated, and I, I'm assuming a lot of people do operate that way too. Which is, you know, you're healthy all along, and and if you have a problem with your health, you go to your doctor; they'll solve everything for you, right? Doctors are gods; they are amazing, right? They do surgeries on my son, and my son comes back home in one piece. <laughs> They're right. massive; like this is, this is, I cannot do it, right? Well, they're still not gods. They're the humans. They're learning, mm-hmm. uh, and they will have to learn with you, right? So if if uh, if folks with rare diseases go to doctors and treat them as another person who's still learning along with you, you would have a more compassion for them, um, and 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 two, honestly, you would also understand that the doctor cannot do everything for you, 
which puts you in, in the driver's seat and, and gives you the possibility that, oh, maybe there is someone else that can help your kid. Because in a lot of cases, what happens is, is people just don't have that understanding or they don't have that insight. Um, and they go to one doctor and they're stuck with them, right? They, took, they go to their pediatrician and think the pediatrician can do everything you can. Unfortunately, they can't. They can't. They're, they're, the world is limited. The knowledge is limited. Um, you go to a specialist and you think, oh, this is the right person. They still cannot. And so, you know, understanding the fact that, yes, while doctors are amazing, they are not every doctor is capable of solving every problem and they have their limited expertise and, and you will hit their limits very quickly if you are especially dealing with a rare disease. And having that understanding as a patient would um, help you find the right care for your kid faster. Right? And that's, that's the first thing I would say for patients. Um, for doctors, and this is actually more important for doctors, having uh, the same understanding that their, their knowledge is limited and they should be open to learning. Unfortunately, I would just blame the system for it. Not all the doctors are, are even capable of thinking about this, right? Um, they, they think they know a lot. Uh, they think they know everything in this world that you really have to offer, uh, and they shut their brains from learning. And what this does is, is for people like us, um, we had to get my son's teeth extracted because doctors shut their brains down. Doctors, basically, the situation that happened is, is my son was hurting his tongue with his teeth because he, he, he would mm -hmm. keep moving his, his tongue over the teeth and he just couldn't stop it. It was his inability to stop, right? Doctors looked at it and said, oh, this is blisters. Oh, this is, uh, you know, bacterial infection, right? So we, we spent about four months where my son was in pain. And the last few days before we extracted the teeth, he was in a pain of electric shock. Like he would be sleeping wow. and suddenly his whole body would like, you know, open out as if like he's like in, in real shock, right? As if someone gave him an electric shock. He was in that amount of pain. He wouldn't even be able to cry because he was in that intense pain. Uh, and, and no one figured this out. We went to a dentist. They didn't figure it out. And then we went to a specialist and they were like, we probably, this is what is happening. At that point, we didn't realize, we didn't accept the doctor. Because we said, screw you, you don't know what you're doing. Right. Uh, we did everything we can. And then eventually we gave up. Because honestly, you know, it is what it is, right? And so as a parent, I would have looked at the possibility better if I was not in denial. Um, and as a doctor, they would have looked at the possibilities better if they were not in denial and my son would not be in pain. So bottom line is both of us have to learn and be open to learning. Right. And I, and I think that's something that, that a lot of folks, you know, I think you said it best, right? Like we all look to the doctor to have the answers and just sometimes they don't. So I think that's, that, that's the, you know, the best advice you, you could give is you both sides have a lot to learn and both sides need to communicate and both sides need to understand that the answers aren't always there. And it's okay to, to, to question. It's okay to, you know, I, I look at my, my parents' generation, you didn't question a doctor about anything, right? And it's okay to do that. It's okay to question. And as you go through rare disease, and as my family went through it, we asked a lot of questions. And, you know, I met a lot of doctors, and I met a lot of doctors around the, around the world from, you know, the Alpha One Foundation for, for our disease. And, you know, I have, I've made really good friends with some physicians. And the ones that I really, um, you know, look up to are the ones that that ask questions back, you know, they try to find out more about the patient yeah. and they try to find out more about the patient's mm -hmm. specific 
issues, right? Because every patient's different, right? We go back to the normal. My my pay, even though I have the same genetic disorder, my normal might be different than your normal, right? I might have you know worse. You know, I talk about my families where it's a it's a liver and a lung condition. I may not be able to breathe as well as you. I may have you know, a collapsed lung, I may have different lung function, I may be I may respond better to a different nebulizer. But those doctors that are really good, ask those questions, and say, Are you responding? Okay, to this? Are you doing okay here? Do I need to increase your dose of this medication to, you know, maybe try something totally different? Maybe this isn't working for you, maybe some type of other thing will work. And I think that's that that it's okay to ask those things. It's okay to be honest. Don't just go in and shut down and nod your head, right? It, and, and it's hard to say because you want to just get out of there as soon as possible. You don't want any more bad news, right? But sometimes that bad news no. can lead to, better, to lead to corrections and better news at a certain point. And I think that's where you want to embrace that time you have with your physician because it, sometimes it is limited. But embrace it and really understand it. And, and, the, and the physicians who embrace the other way too. They, they ask the question, um, you know, we just did a, 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 an interview with a doctor that I really respect Jeff Miskoff, where he said he has the, uh, the, uh, I forget what he called it, but basically when he grabs the door handle, he always turns back and asks, is there anything else before he leaves? Because it's at that time mm-hmm. where the patient relaxes, the doctor's leaving and that concern back to that patient, that last minute concern usually draws something out. And I, you know, I look at that and I, it's so true. You know, you think of that last question, you're like, as a, as a, as a caregiver, as a patient, you go, oh, I should have asked this. Right. But that, exactly. that turn back, maybe that, that time, right. It's like, Hey, let me ask that. So, and, and I really like how, how he does that when, when, you know, the, the patients relax. Right. And it's true. It's, it's for some reason, you know, you, you, you go talk to so many people in life. It's talking to the doctor where you sort of tense up, where you, you think like it's an interview, <laughs> They're really trying to take care of you, <laughs> right? right. Like it, it's like going to a nail salon, right? A nail spa, right? They're trying to take care yeah. of you. <laughs> You're not taking care of them, right? right? I, I don't know what is this whole kind of um, um, thing with doctors. And as you said, my parents' generation are like that. Even, even I was like that, right? You just don't even ask a doctor a question. Um, and right. I don't know, maybe it's, it's from that sort of a, a cultural backing that we're all like, you know, feel very tense when we talk to a doctor or yeah. feel intimidated by kind of lack of knowledge that we have. I don't know, but yeah, it's super weird. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, a, it's an interesting dynamic and, and, you know, it's, I don't know if all cultures are like that, but I know that, you know, our culture is, and it's kind of like, they should be able to look at you and tell you what's wrong with you. And they can't do that. I mean, there's they so many can. tests they have to run and, you know, it's, and, and they, they need to know what's wrong with you so they can diagnose it properly. So, yeah. So again, tell your story and tell your story to your physician so they hear you, right? So they, they can get the right the right diagnosis. So they can get you to somebody who might know it, you know. And that's, I think that's the other advice I give to, to to physicians, you know, is if you don't know something, either find it out or be okay referring on. You know, I think I think there's specialists who are you know specialists in certain ways. And they want to make sure that they don't want to look at like the non as the non-expert in a certain disorder or a certain disease state. And they they hold on to those patients a little too long versus saying, why don't we go check one more thing? Why don't we go check, you know, why don't you go down to, mm-hmm. you know, this this place that may know a little bit more 
they, it's, it's tough to, it's tough for anybody to admit that, that you don't know everything, right. Or you don't know, you're not the expert in your field, but there's always somebody who's smarter. There's always somebody who may have seen something differently. There's always somebody who understands something maybe, you know, more than, than, than you. And I wish people would understand that. So, so one of the, yeah. And some physicians actually, you know, don't, don't really say that they don't know. Um, right. uh, They, they, they kind of, um, they, they, they kind of just like brush aside, right? And they have this, uh, this is kind of behavior of brushing aside, which is just, just, they don't really say it verbally, but they just like act it in their body language. It makes you want to shut. And, and some physicians do say that they don't know, but they don't act on it. Uh, they don't refer you out to a specialist. Uh, they give you a choice that you can maybe go talk to a specialist. I'm like, you should tell me if I should really talk to a specialist or not. Right. right? So I think they kind of piggybacking on that, if, if they can, precisely articulate the fact that they don't know and take action on it that would make a huge difference yeah yeah and, I, and, and yeah i think that's the that's that's a key to key to success in anything you know if you don't know let's get you to where somebody can can answer that question for you and it's very tough for anybody to do that you know you know ne- you never want to look at you never want to be the one that doesn't know the answer or look like you uh, if somebody looks at you as an expert you don't want to become less in the eyes of that person and I think that's that's really tough for a lot of people. So one of the one of the themes we have this year um, in our second season of uh, of Rare Voices is is onward. And what we mean by that is, you know, how can we look forward together? And you know, so what kinds of things do you think are are possible for families impacted with rare and orphan conditions, and for you and your family itself? So as you look onward, what are some of the things that you uh, that you see? Um. I think COVID has been a huge blessing for the rare disease community. Um, there are, there have been many impact uh, that COVID has had, but the biggest impact um, is um, telehealth, um, right? Like we have had yep. access to physicians um, the next day. Like we've, we've been able to talk to specialists across the country the next week. Um, one, they were never that free before. So I, I could, we could never get an appointment with them. Two, we had to travel to their place, which takes a long time and it takes a toll in our in our um, you know schedules. And you know we cannot really uh, go to our job that day, or we have to spend a lot of money to go to a place. And so telehealth uh, and the realization that this is real and this, we can execute in this situation doing telehealth, and we can still be efficient at it, has been just wonderful. Um, I, I think that to me is. Um, is 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 what I'm I'm really hopeful for in the next several several years, um, and it's going to change uh, the game in many ways. Um, one, a lot of doctors across the country are going to understand more about rare diseases, um, because if you think about how a doctor would know about a condition, it is just if you go to them and talk to them, right? And without telehealth, you could only talk to the doctor that was maybe thirty mile radius from where you live. With telehealth, mm-hmm. you could really talk to anybody across the country or even across the world. Now, suddenly more people will understand rare diseases. They would encounter patients with rare conditions. Um, they would appreciate this a lot more. And so I would say in, in like the next three to five years time frame, we would have an entire generation of physicians that have been exposed to rare conditions that think differently, that act differently. And uh, I cannot really predict what's going to come out of it, but I think it's only going to be good. Yeah, and, I, and we've seen some of that with uh, just how we've um, worked with some clinical trials. Uh, we saw clinical trials taking on some more telehealth and 
now you're able to distribute the product a little bit differently. You'll be able to get the product to the patient a little differently. They don't have to travel to a to a site just to pick up their medications. We can actually distribute it through specialty pharmacy. We can distribute it through, you know, um, different channels. And I think that's that's opened up a lot of things for hopefully to progress clinical trials a little bit faster too, where patients will be more, you know, apt to join a clinical trial where they don't have to fly across the country to go for a site visit just so they can get their medication. They can actually do it through telehealth. And we saw a lot of that through COVID. So spot on right there is, is I think, I believe it as well as you do it is we will see more and more come about with rare and ultra orphan disorders with telehealth and with treatment. So um, before I ask a little bit, uh, before I get to, to, you know, next question, one of the things that you mentioned on um, a, a, one of your raising rare podcasts is, and I, I just, I, it, it struck a chord with me um, when somebody asked you advice for people, you said, you know, appreciate the day. We, you know, time is all we have, you know, we have 24 hours in a day. That's all, that's all we get to work with. So appreciate the day. And, you know, I, I, I have a mantra here. And if you ask any of our employees and you have to ask my kids every single morning, when I drop my kids off at school, I say make magic and they repeat back to me, win the day now. So my mantra in life is make magic and win the day. And, you know, it kind of struck that that chord struck me is when you said appreciate the day. It was kind of a lot like what I think about every day. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, just real quick, kind of, you know, I, I, I don't mean to put the words in your mouth of, of what it means. Can you can you give us our, our audience, you know, a little bit of, of what that means to you when you say appreciate the day? Yeah, uh, it means a lot to me. It means uh, the world to us because um you know, we, we've always been planning out, right? We've, we've been planning our next vacation before a kid was born. You know, we would say, oh, yeah, we need to go to China. We need to go to Japan. When is the next long weekend? Let's go plan out for that and let's work until we sort of get close to it, right? And so we've, we've never kind of looked at what a day was um, up until Raga was born. And after he was born, he taught us every minute things will change. Right, he, one minute he will be laughing hysterically, and the next second, because he was laughing, he would choke on his own saliva and vomit. Right, and and so things will go up and down for us in matters of seconds, and and it it was a huge realization to us that that yes, while you can still plan things out, life is not as stable as everybody thought it to be. Um, every day is is a huge gift we have gotten. Um, and I don't really know what tomorrow is going to be. I don't even care what tomorrow is. Uh, all I care is what is my today? What can I get things done today uh, that will help me plan for my tomorrow? And, and am I spending enough time with my son, enough quality time with my son today? Because I don't know what's going to come tomorrow. And, and we've realized every tomorrow has both positives and negatives that we cannot predict. Um, that is how we came to this realization that we have to just appreciate and take one day at a time. I, I, I don't think anybody could say it better than that. So before we end, how can we learn more about you? Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn um, and, and all, all social media, um, Sanat KR, uh, everywhere. Um, and you can also go to opentreatments.org to learn more about um, this initiative that I'm working on. Um, and my podcast is at raisingred.fm. Um, so you can, you can listen to our podcast there as well. LinkedIn is probably where I hang out a lot these days. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sanathan. Thank you for being part of Rare Voices. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Rare Voices, brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. If you want to hear more Rare Voices, go to rare-voices.com. There you can learn about our shows, read articles from industry thought leaders, and fill out a form to be a guest on Rare Voices. Again, that's rare-voices.com. I'm Donovan Quill, co-founder of OptimiCare. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to listen for more Rare Voices all around you, each and every day. Thank you.